Hello everyone, welcome to a new um, episode of uh, citiesabc.com series of interviews with global thought leaders, academics and experts that are leading and changing the world cities, uh, countries and as well reinventing the way we look at the world in a post-COVID-19 uh, ecosystem. Cities ABC is a platform that is a 4AR smart cities digital platform for reinventing and uniting cities, universities and citizens. It was created by a global network of academics um, and uh, actually a lot of uh, thought leaders and influencers and industry leaders. And the idea here is precisely to create a positive beacon of faith that we need that particular, um, given what is happening in the world, but as well reflecting the biggest themes the biggest areas uh, that are changing society as we know it. And today I'm honored to have with us um, someone that is actually working on the cutting edge of probably the biggest uh, epicenter of technology in the world, that is artificial intelligence. So we, uh, we have Professor Michael Rovatsos, that is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of Edinburgh and director of the Bayes Center, the University Innovation Hub for Data Science and AI. He also represents the university at the Allen Turing Institute, the UK National Institute for Data Science and AI. And his research uh, has developed around AI algorithms and architectures to support collaboration between human, sharing economy, electronic commerce, logistics, and so forth. So there's a lot of things that are actually the most powerful things that we are doing as humans. And of course, there's a lot of questions, especially with everything happening in the world. But uh, uh, we'll welcome you, Professor Michael. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. So Hello. to start, uh, so it's, it's great. And I think I have, I have a lot of questions. So probably we, we would need a couple of hours, but we'll have to limit to the one hour and so. So I think to start, uh, I would like to, to start by the basis. So uh, a bit of your background and where you're coming from, education. And how do you uh, end up in the Edinburgh University? I think just to get a bit of the basis and the and the and the foundations. Of course. Uh, so my name is Michael Robatos. I'm a professor of AI at the University of Edinburgh, and I came to Edinburgh uh, around uh, uh, 15 and a bit years ago. Uh, I am Greek by birth. I spent the first few years of my life in Greece, uh, then grew up uh, in. Germany, in the south of Germany, in the, in the Bavarian Alps, a very pleasant way to grow up um, until you get a bit older and then you're looking for uh, bigger places. Then I, I did my first degree in computer science uh, in Saarbrücken and uh, then uh, my PhD in Munich and I worked for, a, for an AI startup during the uh, dot-com bubble in the early uh, 2000s in Frankfurt. And uh, then I was appointed lecturer at the University of Edinburgh in 2004, where I then went on to be a senior lecturer, reader, and, and professor. And now I've been leading uh, the Bay Center, the uh, new center the university has started to, uh, in order to support innovation in AI and data science and other key new digital technologies uh, from about um, just over two years ago. Uh, my, uh, story around coming to Edinburgh was that uh, when I was an undergrad in Germany and uh, Saarbrücken was one of the other kind of key places in Europe uh, that did a lot of AI and this was my motivation to go uh, to this otherwise uh, uh, not very well-known um, town and when I went there and uh, talking to my professors and so on I found out that there had been 
really a long-standing um, collaboration with, uh, with Edinburgh. And Edinburgh, in fact, is not only a 400-year-old institution that has a lot of uh, huge track record in uh, creating knowledge and changing the world, um, but also it, it was the third place in the world that did AI, starting in the uh, mid-60s, just after uh, Stanford and MIT. We were the first place where you could uh, study AI in Europe, and um, it remains one of the biggest computing departments in Europe, uh, building on that on that history. So I found out about these things uh, when I was an undergrad, and my first um, my first uh, uh, visit to Edinburgh was as a, as a visiting undergraduate student uh, when I was around 21, and I was so impressed by what I saw and by the city and by the university and by the department that I um, decided to come back when the pr opportunity presented itself uh, after my PhD. Um, so what's really uh, interesting about uh, Edinburgh it, that, is that it has uh, not just this track record, but it also is really very active in, in all areas of AI. So if you just take the School of Informatics, um, which is, as I said, one of the biggest computing departments in Europe, it, that school uh, has produced uh, over 50% of the papers that are submitted to the um, uh, regular research assessments that the government conducts um, compared to all of the UK. So that's a pretty impressive achievement. And it has uh, six research institutes and nowadays four of these um, focus on AI. Uh, the other thing, two other things have changed in the meantime. Of course, AI itself has uh, almost, we could say, exploded in terms of attention and impact and adoption in industry. And the other thing that has happened is, of course, that uh, we used to think of tech and of digital as kind of one industry. And now uh, we see that it's actually impacting all markets and all sectors. And uh, that sort of explains a bit my role in the Bayes Center. So the Bayes Center um, is named after Thomas Bayes, who, uh, as many um, viewers will know, was uh, established some of the mathematical foundations that underpin a lot of modern statistical machine learning. And uh, he was briefly an undergrad at the University of Edinburgh. And that's why we decided to name the center after him. The, um, the center is part of a, of a massive investment in data-driven innovation. So in the Edinburgh region, we have what's called a, a city region deal, an economic development program that's about uh, one and a half billion pounds. And around half of that, around 600, 660 million will go into data-driven innovation. So it's a very, very ambitious plan to really boost the regional economy and national economy through the use of data and AI. So in the Bay Center, um, that's the first of the, of the innovation hubs we will, um, the university has established using that investment. And uh, so um, we have very ambitious targets over 10 years, uh, we want to create, we want to upskill 100,000 people in data. We want to create 400 new companies. We want to um, um, also really uh, work with at least 1,000 external organizations to help them benefit from the use of data. And the, so the anticipated benefit to the economy is, you know, will be somewhere in the area between two and a half and five billion um, gross value added to the to the regional and Scottish economy. And uh, my, my role in this as, as director is really to coordinate the over 40 
partner organizations we have in the building, some academic, uh, many industrial, some public sector. And this goes really all the way from startups and SMEs to big corporates with different types of, uh, of relationships between them. And um, what we really, what really our task is, is to create an environment where we bring academics and students, uh, so all that talent and the smarts um, together with industry challenges and with investment from the, um, the business world to really drive innovation, to, to accelerate innovation, all the way from, from supporting startups to doing big R&D projects. Uh, so I'm, I'm in charge of kind of coordinating all of that and uh, for the overall uh, delivery of that program. We've only just started a couple of years ago, but we're making great progress. And um, this has also kind of, uh, on a personal level, broadened my horizon uh, a bit. So uh, rather than just uh, focusing on research, I'm now uh, much more looking to uh, build, establish partnerships with other organizations to really turn that research into a real world impact. That's quite impressive to say less and I think very bold and I think super necessary. So I would like to go, before we go more, I have a lot of questions about Bay Center at the university, but I would like to talk about your research. And I think so, and how do you see AI? Because for instance, there was a fantastic research recently that was stating that more than technology, AI is an ideology. And uh, an ideology is that touches, uh, well, artificial intelligence, the idea of machine learning, which is kind of the first stage where we are when we touch AI. But AI is a massive um, uh, concept that goes a lot of the things. So I would like to touch this part, and, and, and this probably can go for a one hour or two hours lecture, but I would like to probably summarize how do you see AI being an expert and as well a researcher and as well an industry and an academic um, leader? So I've been in AI now for 20 years. My own area is uh, what's called multi-agent systems. So uh, systems that involve different artificial or human agents. And I'm really concerned with building the architectures and algorithms that allow people and or multiple agents to cooperate or collaborate. So think about the algorithms you need to uh, to run kind of uh, e-commerce applications or uh, supply chain logistics type things. So anything that involves different stakeholders with different priorities, there's a lot of methods that come there from economics, from game theory, uh, but also distributed optimization, um, things that are similar to operations research and so on. And uh, in terms of uh, how I view this, this AI um, landscape evolving, uh, I think when I came into the field, uh, AI always goes through these hype cycles. When I came into this field in the 90s, it was all about agents and autonomy. It was all about this idea that, you know, we, we create some individual software agents or, or, or robots that actually encapsulate lots of the decision making and reasoning and analyzing the world around them and making decisions to, so we can devolve some intelligence from people to these kind of bots. And, and, and robots. Um, machine learning, an area that is very big now, was already big then, uh, but we didn't have uh, the compute ability and the amounts of data that we have now. So, um, so what my field uh, kind of failed to do back then is, is to achieve the kind of adoption we're seeing now um, with these newer, newer technologies. I think it's very important to distinguish between kind of, you know, AI as a scientific discipline 
Uh, and AI as the, the kind of AI related technologies we are seeing flourish uh, in, uh, in industry and in real world applications. So of course, AI is a discipline, is, as, you, as you pointed out, is extremely broad. It covers everything from studying robots, studying language, studying uh, reasoning and, and knowledge, how we, how we um, describe knowledge and how we do um, inference over that knowledge, all the, way, all the way to learning, adaptation, and the sorts of things, for example, also that, that I do in my own research. Um, however, and, and, and you can have two different uh, areas of focus there. You're either trying to understand how intelligence works, which is maybe, maybe less relevant for actually developing the applications. It's more like, you know, like physics, uh, like, like astronomy studies space. Uh, so, you know, intelligence is a phenomenon. How can we use computer models to understand it? And, and then, of course, there, of course, you go very broad and you look at all kinds of different th things. In terms of the technologies that have reached the maturity where we're seeing them now used um, every day, uh, that's a very, there, when we talk about AI, we're really actually are talking about a very small number of things that are already uh, working well and uh, scale sufficiently are computationally tractable and have uh, seen widespread adoption. Uh, and I would say that these, th these are primarily the things around machine learning, data analytics, predictive analytics, and anything to do with um, really turning data into insight to make de better decisions, I think from a business point of view. Um, the second one, is slightly more, more involved and specific is anything to do with natural language processing, uh, machine translation, uh, um, voice assistants, um, chatbots, uh, anything that is to do with, uh, uh, with processing language and, and generating and consuming language and understanding it, uh, where we've achieved massive um, improvements over the, over the last 20 years. So when I started university, it was, I remember a professor saying, uh, we will never be able to robustly recognize human speech and understand what somebody is saying. And uh, there you go. This is now on everybody's mobile phone. So, so that's another thing that has changed, um, the, another technology that is, is much more mature. And the third one, although to a lesser extent in real-world applications that we see and maybe more specific to certain sectors, is robotics. So that's another area where we've done... Um, a lot of progress. So I would say, you know, these are the three areas where we're really seeing concrete business impact um, against a much wider and more ambitious long-term program of research around AI. And what I want to say about even the ones where we are seeing benefits, uh, the techniques, I think, because there is, as you say, AI has almost become an ideology. Um, there is a perception that uh, the fundamental algorithms, the, the methods, the, the, the research findings that have helped um, this boom in AI, that they are quite novel. Uh, in fact, a lot of them are uh, quite well understood and have been around for a while. Of course, they're being constantly improved. Um, but I would really like to emphasize that the big step change has come about from having more compute power and um, exponentially more data. So as you know, 
the data we've gathered uh, over the last two years um, is more than what humanity has, has, has collected throughout its existence. And this, this keeps growing at an exponential growth. So, so the real, um, I think the real benefit in some ways that I anticipate for the next few years, uh, I mean, of course, we hope that there will be step changes in terms of really having kind of uh, cheap humanoid robots that can help you in an uh, operating theater or, uh, you know, the kind of virtual assistants that understand everything you say and help you uh, complete all your tasks and are much more intelligent than the ones we have now. But I think by and large, the immediate benefit will come from relatively basic and simple uh, data analytics and machine learning being adopted on a much wider scale. So what I'm seeing is that actually while, while everybody talks about AI, we still suffer from actually only relatively few people being able to use even the most mature and, and kind of off the shelf techniques. Um, there is a huge demand um, of, of businesses and organizations uh, having access to some data that might help them that aren't able to derive most insight from that data. So I really think um, if we could achieve uh, a much wider adoption of the things that are relatively straightforward and well understood, uh, that would already give us, a, give us a massive benefit. Although, of course, as an academic, I would say I, I want to shoot for the stars and in my own research and in my own area, um, I, uh, of course, will always be looking at the things we can't solve yet. But we have to be aware of the of the pipeline from inception of new ideas to actual application. And uh, right now, I think in terms um, of how the world can benefit from AI, of course, we need to focus on the on the low hanging fruit and on um, upskilling really a lot of people to be able to apply them in their jobs. So you touch a lot of the different things, and of course we cannot touch all of them, but I, I would like to, to touch one, one or two things in particular of what you mentioned. So one thing, like you mentioned, there's the, the study of intelligence, which is a big thing, uh, to say less, and which is probably critical for us to look. And the other thing, of course, is taking this, uh, this uh, into practical uses that can be used for a lot of different things. So one of the things I want to do, and probably going from the theory to practice, but as well, especially touching in all the areas that you're doing, both as researcher and as well as an industry leader and academic leader, is that we are in a very kind of, um, I would say, I don't know how to say it, because there's a lot of different ways. I will try to not go political, but we are in a very sensitive time in history of mankind. In one end, we have more technology than ever. Well, actually, there was never, actually, we have better even with the massive crisis we're facing in the world, we have less poverty than ever. But we have a massive perception of intelligence and the perception of um, even almost we are dividing the world into phases. So we have these people that are using kind of the, the result of science and, and AI to question everything and to question authorities, academic authorities, and, and even creating all the so fake news, which is partly built with AI. Um, and then we have, of course, people like you and us that try to use this for good and as well to, to change the world. But this is kind of creating a massive clash of civilization. And, and partly 
I would say if you look at history, we see probably this, and there's a couple of other history, historic people looking at this, is like what happened with the Roman Empire, which was the most advanced, advanced civilization besides ours, and that suddenly crashed and it gave age, or give, give birth to the Middle Ages, as we know it, that became, of course, more driven by cities and less by, by civilizations. So how do you see this level? So point one, and the first question is, definitely the the way we humans coexist both in terms of education both in terms of using the tools is right now probably more fragmented than ever and uh, and i'm sure that that's why i want to touch you as a teacher and as well a, an industry or policy maker is that the challenge is how can we tackle this and how do you see this because this is becoming a massive problem if you see the news well, first of all, even if you use data and AI data for looking at the news, we see that a huge part of the news are fake. But we have a lot of governments question authority of universities, question really basic scientific knowledge. And this is having, having a huge impact, especially the way we're building artificial intelligence. Because in the other end, we're using artificial intelligence to uh, propaganda and to come back to the old part of humanity, which, is, which takes us to two levels. And sorry. I'm going around circles, but I want to go there. So is the question is, so when we study AI and human intelligence, okay, human intelligence is in one end the brain, but that's emotional intelligence. Um, and unfortunately, the part of the brain, the more scientific part and the human intelligence, not, not always mixed together. So how do you see this angle, especially in building AI solutions? Because like you mentioned, as we build more data and machine learning data, most of this data is being used right now for not necessarily the best things. And it's starting to disrupt the world economy, the world uh, political system, and a lot of other things that are for right now being weaponized for making social experiments or even social uh, changes. And of course, this can be taken to the different angles, but I would like to have probably on that angle in specific, how do you see this? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one, there is one area where I think actually the, the AI community throughout its history has to be a little bit blamed for putting this emphasis on the individual's intelligence. So, you know, you know, all the old ideas about, you know, first beating a computer at chess, then beating it at Go and so on. Um, I think what we have demonstrated probably is that uh, any, the problem is less one of can I be faster than a human brain or, or better than a human brain at solving one particularly intellectually difficult task. Um, that can probably be demonstrated with enough time and enough effort on any kind of task that is more like a quiz or like a mathematical problem or something. Uh, even, even if it's physical, even, you know, eventually we will probably have an arm that can perform surgery. Um, what we didn't crack and maybe didn't focus enough on is really what happens when different people develop these systems in parallel and these systems interact with each other, given that they are built and influenced by humans. Uh, and the key thing, I, I, the key notion I would emphasize there is the notion of trust. So in the past, we've always seen that institutions, technologies, and uh, economies have thrived when they managed to maintain the public's trust. And the, 
uh, I think what we're seeing now is that we, we, we put in place the internet, we put in pl place mobile technologies, we put in place cloud computing, all the infrastructures, but we didn't think so much about what is the mechanism by which trust will be embedded in those. Uh, and one reason for that, there is actually also something that maybe was present already, but not visible. Um, one reason, as a, as, a, as a global society, we, were, we never had set up a global system for trusting each other. It was always done with the manipulations and strategies of every individual player. Now, of course, if you have kind of, if you can exert influence through digital systems on a global scale, but you don't have that coordination and agreement between all the players, then, um, uh, then it's, it's going to undermine the social relationships and, and tensions between countries and within, within nations and so on. So I think this is a real, uh, on the one hand, it's a real uh, kind of geopolitical problem um, but on the other, it's also for the technologists. Uh, so for me personally, I ask myself, what would make these AI systems trustworthy? And I'm trying to look at other technologies and I'm thinking, okay, what, what if other safety critical technologies were like AI? So for example, what if people had just invented airplanes and everybody was just flying their planes as they like? What would we expect in traditional engineering you know, you have standards, you have international agreements, you have a validation verification framework to actually uh, where, where the manufacturer, the technologist is asked to secure, you know, to, to um, guarantee the safety. Uh, and I think what we've experienced in tech is that because of the great acceleration, these institutional things are far behind. So we don't really have uh, you know, a seal of approval when you uh, get the system from the vendor that it is robust against not only manipulation from its users, but even manipulation from the organization deploying it, right? So, so um, uh, for example, if you, if you uh, I know from my research, if you are asking for research funding, you have to fill in um, you have to fill in uh, certain ethical assessments where you say, well, you know, the thing you develop, can it be weaponized, right? So we, we don't have such standards for AI in general. When you go to a vendor uh, and, and you buy it, um, uh, do they have to, uh, are they answerable to some authority to say this, um, we, have, we have guaranteed that this cannot be manipulated and weaponized? So. So I think there is, I guess the, the answer I'm giving is also very complex, but I think what we have to think about is what are the foundations of making AI trustworthy? Some of these foundations are technological. So, you know, sometimes you just have to have the testing and validation procedures in place to make sure the, um, for example, if you are, uh, you, you can detect the fake news, otherwise you will not be allowed to deploy your social media platform. Um, but you also need, need the institutional framework. So, you know, you need, you need the people who can enforce these rules and who can uh, sanction them. 
Uh, and the third thing you need is you need the public debate. Uh, I think at the moment, one of the big problems is that, um, that uh, the people are concerned about a lot of things. At the same time, they're quite vulnerable because they don't understand the technologies very well and they don't understand how to use them critically. So I think education is a big part of that. Um, and so, so only, I think only if you have kind of a, uh, a, a tech industry buying into this principle of, uh, you know, supporting good societal outcomes as, as objectives of, of, of what they're developing, um, plus the, uh, you know, governments and regulators who have the mechanisms to deal with that technology. I think it's also fair to say most governments and uh, organizations are just not ready to, to solve these problems. And the third one is the public debate. So actually society tells us what these systems should be like. Um, because I think at the moment what's happening, you mentioned fake news. Uh, fake news is essentially a, a very smart uh, um, uh, way of undermining both algorithms that aren't able to deal with the manipulation and humans who will be willingly uh, proliferating false information unintentionally because they don't understand or see what's going on. So it's almost like even though the AI may be more and more intelligent, our global system and society isn't intelligent enough to deal with it. It's almost like a co-evolution. The technology is getting better, but the bad things you can do with the technology um, are things for which society is not prepared. Yeah, so that's fantastic. And I think you answered to the point in a lot of very practical and sum summary ways. So thank you so much, because it's not easy to go through all this, these areas. So keeping on the AI for now, and uh, so one of the, your areas of research, like you mentioned before, is the areas of, um, um, I just want to go through the, the right areas here, but you've been looking at a research in terms of um, how to apply multi-agents and uh, algorithms that can automate norm sy norms synthesis, and as well looking at how to apply this in society and creating a smart society. So I think this probably is the evolving from the first part that you're touching. Um, how can we make that happen, especially right now when we are in a very sensitive moment where the world economy and the world society is becoming digital, whatever you want it or not. In one end, there's a good thing that COVID-19 brought. So that means uh, we are all right now using digital tools to, to perform and to interact. And of course, this will create a lot of issues in terms of social, emotional uh, balance but it creates a lot of opportunities. The challenge right now is, of course, this is creating as well a huge economical and financial meltdown. But for instance, if you look purely from data, and uh, we actually did this with another interview with another expert in AI and business analytics, is if you look at business analytics and picking and researching multi-agents and different areas, you could actually apply, just looking at a country requirements, let's say, if you just put data of, let's say, all the, the companies in um, Scotland and they put it in machine learning and we look at the companies that are on the verge of um, uh, bankruptcy or at least in very bad situations, the government can see looking at metrics, the ones that can be saved, the ones cannot be saved. 
And this can be applied as well to create jobs for young people and a lot of other people. Because if you look, okay, we have this society with 6 million people, these areas are not fooled and we need to fool. So in theory, the work of experts like you is amazing, but then the governments are not doing any of this. And I think the challenge, and that's why I think it makes sense. So how do you see this kind of conceptual work in one end that is creating a kind of human intelligence and human social balance and as well the frame between the industry that you touch very i think picking in your own words i think you mentioned something that i really like a lot that is uh, the area of apply mechanisms and ethical assignments to avoid the ai but as well to come up with more pragmatism because the only way we can kill a lot of these things is come up with utilitarian systems so i don't know i just want to keep on this angle if you have some, yeah. some uh, you touch already this. You, I think you, I think you are absolutely right. I mean, there is a. I sometimes in sometimes when I when I do um, give give presentations, I I, I um, uh, sketch this vision of that. In theory, you could you could use all this stuff to have almost like an economy, you know, almost without money or without kind of you know chaotic. Uh, decentralized um, decision making that makes where there's a lot of faults, right? So in theory, you could have a very well coordinated thing where you gather all the data, you make some political decision about where the resources should go, where the money should go, where the workforce should go, and you could almost have like a, 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 a bird's eye view to optimize the economy. Um, I think in practice we have um, some significant roadblocks though to solve in order to get there. As you're saying, uh, the governments don't seem ready for, to be able to do these uh, you know, evidence-based and rational responses to um, crises. Uh, I think the first roadblock is um, we are still really behind on bringing all the data together. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that there isn't enough data. I mean, there isn't enough of a, of a willingness from all the different stakeholders to share and open up the data and, and join it. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of thinking about commercial sensitivity. There's a lot of uh, thinking around, you know, giving away data to competitors. And what I'm, what I'm advocating here isn't, you know, necessarily open data or making things public. Uh, you can have very bespoke and, uh, you know, commercially um, uh, careful uh, agreements to share different types of data and so on. Um, but I think in many parts of the economy, that is really still hard to do. Um, and, uh, and governments themselves, in terms of just their data awareness and the data skills of the key people who, would, who could make that happen, are just not there yet. There is a huge amount of, of help uh, that they need to get there. Um, the deeper roadblock is somebody, or I wouldn't call it a roadblock, but maybe maybe a, maybe more of a, a conundrum is, is kind of, you know, how do you, somebody would have to set the objectives of those systems and that's a clearly a political decision. Um, what would end up happening is 
uh, unless we're careful, is that, of course, the evidence for or against a certain measure, uh, I mean, given that, given that, you know, citizens and the general public will not be able to validate whether all the data has been checked, whether people were selectively uh, giving more weight to some part of the evidence against another part, um, my, my concern would be that you could still manipulate um, those sorts of things uh, politically, of course. Uh, so, so I think that's a deeper problem. In, in, in some of my research, I've tried to develop methods where, uh, you know, essentially you, you could crowdsource the objectives. Um, you know, so, so, you know, you could ask people, what should we optimize uh, in, this, in this world, right? So if you have like ride sharing, should we optimize the, the revenue for the platform? Should we optimize fair wages for the drivers? Should we optimize customer satisfaction? And how, how do we mix these things? And I think you can do those things, you can crowdsource those things in principle. And I think that is the dream of um, what the pioneers of the, of the internet always had, that it would become this big democracy where you would not be, you could not be manipulated because nobody would have enough individual power um unfortunately we have seen that power still accumulates and, and sometimes it's knowledge sometimes it's you know the resources to for example deploy huge armies of uh, social media trolls to influence the opinion so so i think what you are what you are describing is very much probably the future of doing kind of evidence based politics based on um, the, and, and not just politics, but also um, business strategy, economic strategy. And uh, I think that is the future, but I think, again, we, we, we don't have the institutional scaffolding so that we could deploy it now. And, you know, that as a citizen, I could relax and say, okay, I have, I have reasonable trust that that is working well. Yeah, I, I think I, I like the idea of institutional scaffolding. <laughs> I think it's a very good metaphor. So one one thing, if you look at the the AI arms race and not going political, uh, partly what you just described is already happening. So if you look at uh, what is happening with China, not going anything political, the Chinese government is already applying AI and blockchain on a massive scale. They just launched the blockchain protocol for. Uh, right now, I think 200 cities and going to 452 cities worldwide, which is kind of most of the blockchain research is still in the universities, if you take all the crypto part. And if you look at AI, it's even more advanced, especially the way they're using this setup to create smart cities and so forth. So the challenge right now is that we have already governments applying all of this in a very big scale. And, and I think I'm not going to the political consequences, but this is already happening. So this is creating, in one end, a huge uh, disbalance. And I think Professor Arari recently, in most of his talks in the World Economic Forum and other things, um, was talking precisely about a kind of a, a new uh, part of a system or world uh, um, invasion or, or kind of, uh, how can we put it in a, these terms, uh, the sense of uh, we're going to have a, a new colonies, 
data colonies. Uh, so the countries that are more advanced will be, uh, of course, the invasors, and of course, the countries that are less advanced will be colonies of the other countries. And and this is already happening, whether we like it or not. Okay, so I think we cannot just look at this purely from an academic or from a, an intellectual perspective because it's happening as we speak. And of course, even in universities. So how can we, and not, not going political, but, but going political in the Greek word polis, that is the city, how can we look at this um, from an academic and research perspective and the scaffolding institutional, creating scaffolding institutions that we need that, and I love that metaphor. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on this, not going political, I think it's an important area. Yeah, I mean, um, so I think, I think you are right. I think, you know, we are seeing that uh, there is this colonization. We are seeing that there, the, the tensions are mounting between uh, the big players. Um, we are seeing also that, uh, you know, many people don't notice this, but it, for example, in the area of cybersecurity, uh, there is actually already kind of a, a war, uh, which is an arms race, and it's happening on a daily basis in the background. Um, and uh, I think you mentioned earlier on that we are at this juncture where all this could give huge benefits and prosperity uh, or it could collapse. Uh, and I think it's, it's difficult to make any political predictions, but I'll, I'll give you a parallel from what Edinburgh, Edinburgh has always seen itself a little bit because of the strong historical connections to the US, but on the other hand, because of being in Europe. And so as a, as a, as a bridge between East and West and, and during the Cold War, uh, Edinburgh um, was a, a place where we had, I think they were called the Edinburgh Conversations, uh, where you really kind of, you know, as a, as a, as a somewhat neutral uh, third party, try to bring both perspectives to the table and then understand what, uh, you know, how, how mutual cooperation and in those days peace uh, could be safeguarded by, uh, by, through dialogue. And I think we would like to do the same thing and we aim to do the same thing. We have created a new a uh, big center for data and AI ethics and uh, around the future of AI and so on. And uh, I think I would like to see that happen nowadays, most likely between the US and China uh, in the first instance. And you will know that Europe as a whole is trying to position itself in terms of strength uh, on the basis of responsible AI uh, rather than um, uh, the, the, the kind of mostly uh, rather than the, the, the American and Chinese kind of worlds, which are quite different in terms of outlook. Um, so what, but, but what am I saying? Is, 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 that, is that going to solve the problem? I think what that's going to show is whether, if you compare it, if you compare tech to uh, the, the world of uh, nuclear uh, technology and the arms race we had there, uh, we managed to resolve it uh, by keeping um, these conversations going. And, but of course, I would ideally like AI and data not even to get to that point where it's seen as a similar, similarly dangerous technology. Um, I think it's also important to say that this, I think the key thing that has changed there is actually data and connectivity and not AI, 
So I think these things partially would happen. You don't necessarily need to have smart algorithms or smart blockchains. I mean, of course, that adds certain capabilities. Uh, but, um, but I think it's actually more of an economic uh, war, if you like, or arms race, in, in, if that makes sense. That's around, that's a lot around data. And I think that sort of tends to happen when there's any new big opportunity that all global leaders become aware of. So yeah, so I don't, I don't have the solution. Um, but I think that there are a few uh, things that can help in that conversation. For example, we work very closely with, with Chinese partners. We work very closely with, uh, with American partners, for example. And we managed to do that in a, in a reasonable way. And I think the way it works is that you make clear what your standards and objectives are. And you only engage with people on those terms. And you're also a critical friend to them rather than just accepting uh, what, they, what is done maybe in their, in their wider political systems and countries. And uh, I think in Europe, uh, what we have done, for example, with GDPR is quite important because we have basically said that these are the rules of the game uh, if you want to access our market. Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, you also sometimes have to flex your muscles a little bit in, in terms of your market uh, power. Um, and I'm, for me, it's quite important that you build consensus between these markets so you can grow your position there in when you're negotiating with, with others uh, on the global scale. Yeah, and I think it's a very good point. And I think it's, uh, you partly answered to that in a very, I think, way. And I think the idea of make clear standards is critical and how to apply these standards and as well almost a kind of a neutrality empowerment to AI and, and data or the part of data AI for creating a better future. So moving right now to, to base center and the work uh, that, uh, that you're doing. So I, I know that there's, uh, University of Edinburgh is one of the universities in terms of computing science in the world. Um, just give us a bit of some of the highlights and the, the kind of the, the highlights and the, the things that you are very proud, but as well for the world to know, because I know that there's a lot of things happening in Edinburgh and in, in the base center that not a lot of people know from working with NASA to a lot of robotics and things like that. Yeah, so um, uh, I've, I've mentioned a little bit about the, the, the larger initiatives, but just to make that a big a bit more concrete so um we've what we've done in the center is we've brought in a lot of kind of different uh people who have expertise in the key areas so for example we have the uh, our edinburgh center for robotics probably the becoming the biggest um group um uh in in robotics in the uk and uh, with with amazing equipment like uh, nasa's valkyrie robot that is a, a humanoid that uh, will one day go to Mars. Um, uh, so that's, that's one element, but we do a lot of work also, for example, in space and satellite data. We're working with an American startup that's going to send its uh, CubeSats into space to make uh, real-time weather observation possible in, in helping airlines improve their, their routes and uh, in, in real time with low latency. Um, we've got lots of mathematicians, statisticians in the in the building. They're doing, for example, projects 
to optimize the the energy system uh, uh, energy power distribution in in the UK and uh, also our our parallel computing center EPCC is uh, maintains the um, most of the uh, UK's national supercomputing high performance computing infrastructure then just got commissioned with uh, the new national supercomputer contract for uh, Archer 2. So they used to run the old supercomputer that was called Archer for many years. And uh, now they will start up Archer 2 and are working towards some uh, exascale computing projects. And um, so, so it's, a, it's a mix of having these um, academic expertise and then mixing it with uh, startups and young innovators and talent. So a third of the people in the building are PhD students um, from data science, robotics, natural language processing, uh, biomedical AI, cybersecurity, mathematics, and so on. So all the kinds of areas that are, that are relevant. We have our accelerator programs, uh, um, an accelerator that we have run several times with Waira, that's part of, of uh, Telefonica and also with support from Cisco and our um, investor showcase called EIE. So this is a, a one-day event uh, once a year where around 80 startups pitch to up to 200 investors. So that's brought uh, 700 million pounds of uh, investment to um, local startups over the last 12 years. And it also involves you know, the sorts of programs to coach and mentor uh, businesses to develop their, their uh, pitches. We also have um, several R&D labs with corporates, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, Huawei, uh, also collaborations with, with Intel and, and other big, um, larger and smaller companies. SaaS is another, is another example of a big corporate. So what we really want to try to do is to have this ecosystem where you've got uh, kind of the best ideas, the brightest people, the most innovative companies and the best partners uh, to help create impact and spin up, spin up new ventures. Um, and uh, this is kind of for the university. I mentioned the university is 400 years old. If you imagine the university as a very old, uh, big um, cruise ship on the seas of academia, uh, our mission is really to change the course of that big ship by a few degrees to make it more... Um, outward facing, more porous, more open to the outside world, uh, working in situ, working in our building with, um, with external partners. So we've, we've got a, a facility, a uh, very nice uh, big um, facility in, in the city center of Edinburgh uh, that has space for around 600 people. There's around 500 um, in it already. And uh, that's a mix of a third students, a third academics, a third external people. So it's really about all of them uh, breathing the same air to help the university um, move more in towards uh, external organizations and the challenges that come from the economy and society. Um, I mentioned the, the School of Informatics and our track record in AI. Of course, another thing that's happening is now that we have many other disciplines uh, getting engaged with uh, technology. Um, for example, our geoscientists in space and satellites and earth observation and climate monitoring, our uh, mathematicians in doing statistics, modeling, operations research, and our um, physicists and uh, chemists and biologists, for example, uh, applying data-driven science 
to drive new um, new discovery in their disciplines and and, and create spin-offs with that in in materials in uh, um, signal processing in uh, computational chemistry and drug design and so on and all the way of course also to completely different areas um, like uh, healthcare um, we are now of course in the middle of the of the covid crisis and we know that uh, the application of data science and ai will play a key role in dealing with this pandemic and with future pandemics um, in all kinds of ways from uh, diagnosis and treatment to epidemiology and uh, modeling the impact and some of the things that we spoke about earlier on about uh, the business impact and being able to make the right decisions there and the right policy making uh, choices so so that's just kind of you know in in a, in a nutshell what we're trying to do i guess the um important thing is that we in a sense we're trying to maximize the value that you get out of everyone's investment. So our, my own university has invest, is going to invest over a hundred million in this area out of its own money. Um, we have a mandate to raise a lot of uh, uh, over 200 million uh, from industry and the public sector to drive this kind of innovation. So there is a, there is a common understanding that to really make a step change in the, in the regional and national economy, you really need to pull together resources from all parts of society and all uh, sectors to make that happen. Um, on the global uh, scale, I think there is uh, what's very interesting about the positioning of Scotland is that we're a relatively small country. We're an incredibly well-connected uh, country between our all ourselves. So you know, it's uh, uh, my colleagues in London are sometimes. Um, uh, quite jealous that you know here we tend to know our our ministers and our government personally and that uh, we have uh, close conversations with all the different other innovation centers and universities on a regular basis so that's i think is an advantage um, we have an incredible amount of talent we have um, uh, over the last 15 years built a startup tech ecosystem that uh, has flourished, you know, starting with um, with a couple of startups in my uh, old uh, building, computer science, uh, in a back room uh, with some kind of very very early small ideas, to uh, having two Scottish uh, unicorns. Um, one of them uh, came out of the university; the other one uh, decided to set up shop just next to us. And we've also so now we've got. Hundreds of these of these uh, ventures around us, and we work very closely with them. And also, this has attracted big other players to Edinburgh, including uh, IBM and uh, Amazon, who have an R and D lab here at Skyscanner, um, and others. Um, so, so I think um, sometimes uh, investors who come across from the U.S. or from Asia sometimes tell us, you know, you are the world's best kept secret. Uh, Scottish people tend to be quite modest and uh, very hardworking, and uh, you know we want to really underpin everything we claim about what we do with uh, with substance and with uh, quality. Um, uh, but I think uh, we are really more than uh, uh, on par with with lots of other uh, hubs 
in, in Europe and across the world and uh, actually um, delivering far more impact per, uh, per capita in terms of our citizens than, uh, than many other places. So that's something to be quite proud of. And it's also as a, as a member of the university quite to be quite proud of to be able to build on the expertise of all the people in the different disciplines to drive that uh, rather than um, uh, starting something from scratch. So it's, uh, we're, we're very proud to be the, the oldest kind of civic university uh, established in the UK. So we, we, are, we were not established by a king, we were not established by the church. We really belong to the city of Edinburgh and we are kind of uh, acting globally, but rooted uh, in, the, in the local um, environment and in our city and really very conscious of our role to uh, have a positive impact on on our city and also in the world. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Uh, this kind of a great track record that uh, the world needs to know. And I think it's really a secret sometimes. Of course, it's well known, but not well known as probably a lot of other universities. So I think uh, we passed already one hour. So one of the last things that I would like to ask and, and keep in more or less this, but I really want to touch that part. So looking at your research and looking at uh, um, the idea coming back probably to AI and, and to create a message of hope. So how can we create a collective? So I think part of the solution, and we touched that partly, is, is related to collective intelligence and partly the success of the University of Edinburgh and Bay Center is that collective intelligence of putting society working together and talent, like you mentioned, but as well is about creating a human-friendly environment and human-friendly AI. So as a message of hope, especially right now, and you touch a bit uh, the work you've been doing in terms of healthcare and AI for COVID-19. So definitely we are in a, in a big uh, question mark about what is going to happen. And definitely whatever we do now, all of us, because we are all part of this, can make a big change. So how would you be your recommendations being a citizen of the world that's been from, coming from the, one of the oldest and most successful civilizations in history? Greece, but as well from Germany, and of course right now being in, Ed in, in Edinburgh and Scotland. How do you see and what would be your vision, both as an academic and as well as a thought leader and as well a, a leader in, in, in a lot of different areas? Uh, I, I think it's really, this is really, it's a little bit a now or never moment, I think. Uh, you know, we, we have all collectively um, worked towards uh, you know creating the technology and creating the um, the the foundations um coming from more the, the technologists and the researchers point of view um that would allow us really to make a big impact so that the next time a big crisis happens not just a health crisis but any crisis we can be ahead of the curve you know everybody's talking about we need to flatten the curve i i think okay this time we need to flatten the curve uh, the next time we need to be ahead of it and not even let it grow. Uh, and for me, the message of hope is really that I see, well, first of all, I see a generation, uh, especially a younger generation, that is very conscious not only of the, the power of technology to make a positive impact on that and the power of collaborating around data and technology to help solve these issues, but also is very conscious of being vigilant about the potential dangers. Um, uh, I was 
so to give you two examples of this, in my own university, just in one university, within a couple of weeks after uh, starting uh, a web page where we were collecting people's ideas, we had a list of 140 projects on, uh, on um, uh, COVID alone, uh, most of which were somehow to do with data. So, so it shows that people want to collaborate across the disciplines, understand the value of technology, understand how it impacts everybody from a, from a virologist to an epidemiologist to the person who wants to uh, manufacture protective equipment and the person who wants to do business impact assessments of the, of the crisis. So I think the, the potential of technology to help is great and the willingness and ways in which we have been able to mobilize people across the world, uh, you know, an, essentially an invisible army of people sitting on their Skype calls and, uh, and Zoom calls, uh, but actually pulling together to spin up new and useful activity to re respond rapidly to this crisis is really, really impressive. Um, on the other hand, to give you an example of this, of this uh, the importance of this being being uh, vigilant and being making sure we do these things in beneficial ways. Uh, there were a lot of discussions initially about contact tracing apps and how we can do that in secure ways and so on. And uh, to see how fast people from different countries engaged with that, uh, highlighted the dangers, offered solutions, uh, how quickly then, in some cases at least, you know, uh, countries, some countries, uh, you know, stepped away from initial proposals where risks were identified. Um, uh, so I, I found that quite impressive. You know, earlier on, we were talking about how slow sometimes we still are and how uh, some parts of society are not ready for some of the innovations yet and how much more work there is to do. But equally, I think that when there is a will uh, to collaborate and to make a positive change. I have been quite impressed by how much um, we, we can mobilize, how many resources and people we can mobilize in a very short period of time. And I'm absolutely sure that that would not have been possible without the technology, but also without, if you like, data and evidence-based reasoning and uh, rational decision-making having become woven into the fabric of public debate and public thinking. Of course, we know there are people out there that resist it, and we are, there are people out there that try to um, go against that kind of you know, enlightened and, uh, and, and rational way of uh, trying to solve problems together with all the knowledge we have. Um, and that will remain to be something we have to, we have to fight. Uh, but I'm very hopeful that we are developing the capability and the willingness um, to do that. I think an area where we need to do more is international coordination. I, I, I see that citizens, researchers, businesses are very, very openly, closely collaborating across the world. Uh, the institutions and the governments and the um, decision makers higher up uh, have not demonstrated that they have been able to coordinate uh, these things that fast. Uh, so I think there is a lot of there is a lot of work there to do. But hopefully, uh, they will understand also that getting through these crises requires that. 
you know that's that's very inspiring and i appreciate because it's really we need we need to shift the the attention to more positive narrative and i think narrative is everything because if you don't start to narrow even when you program an algorithm if you don't put the narrative clear <laughs> you might end up end up actually with a monster or at least with something that doesn't work so i think probably as the last parts i would like to probably where people can find some of your papers, some of your information, some of the things about Base Center and the work you've been doing, because I think it's important. We have quite a big audience that is growing. And I think uh, our focus is precisely to highlight the good things that are happening, because we have a lot of good things happening. So if you could highlight some of the things and some of the websites and, and platforms, and even some of the papers that you suggest for people that are listening to this. So uh, yeah, I would invite everybody to look at the, um... Uh, the Bay Center website. So if you just Google Bay Center Edinburgh, um, uh, that's uh, very easy to find, um, to understand, to, to learn more about our, our wider work. And uh, as a center, we also view ourselves as a, as a front end for people from outside the university who, uh, in order to navigate uh, the university landscape, you can always come and talk to us and uh, we'll, uh, we'll direct you to the right people in other departments. We have of course, 20, 20 schools and three colleges. We're a big university. Um, for my own research profile, uh, if you just look uh, for my name on the, uh, uh, in the School of Informatics at the university, uh, you will find that uh, in the um, uh, Artificial Intelligence and its Applications Institute, which is one of the six institutes in informatics. Um, but I am also very lucky to have a, uh, a very unusual surname. So uh, if you Google me, uh, I believe I am still the first hit, uh, luckily. Uh, not not due to my fame, but uh, due to the rarity of, uh, of the surname. No, thank you so much. We're going to put all these links in the interview. This will be distributed in a lot of websites, including right now in China as well, where we start right now distributing our videos. So probably one last question following up to wrap up this. So I think one of your areas of expertise is the idea of smart society. Um, and given that our platform is about cities and cities ABC creating a better narrative for citizens for citizens, um, what would be kind of your overview in terms of the idea of a better smart city, smart society, and the collective um, um, human activity, which is part of what you have, and I think especially part of your research. Yes, I mean, I think I think the key thing that I have learned from projects in this area is that uh, you really need to um, design these services for the citizen. So we are technologists and as technologists and as academics, you know, of course, I'm always very excited to develop a new algorithm or a new platform. Um, but in reality, the technology should follow the human and not the other way around. Uh, I'm going to give you a very, very simple example. In one of my big projects, we were, we were designing a ride-sharing platform, and then we, uh, we took to trial it um, uh, to one of our, one of our partners was in Israel, and uh, he wanted to use it at his university where uh, students use this platform to uh, find people to drive home on the weekend and so on. And we designed the platform, uh, you know, with our assumptions about what people would care about, you know, how much do they pay for the ride? How long does it take? What is the departure time? But actually, it turns out um, what they cared about was whether people were smoking in the car and uh, or whether they were they had dogs. Um, so, my what I learned from this is, um, and we spoke about fragmentation of the global landscape, and so what what I learned from this is that um, 
human society has a lot of diversity. There are lots of different cultures. There are lots of different individuals. And the primary thing you have to try to do in cities and, and with collective intelligence and uh, uh, services that uh, require um, large-scale human participation is really to understand the values, preferences, and um, objectives of the people who will participate. Because essentially, these systems are nothing without the data and activity contributed by people. Uh, and I think in the smart cities world, uh, for a very long time, there was a strong focus on uh, instrumenting the environment, having the sensors, having the um, uh, smartness in the physical environment. Now, that is, of course, an important part. But equally, we know that many uh, collective intelligence things happen with very... Uh, with very lightweight technology and that it's not always about the hardware and the kit and the intelligent sensors. So, um, so I think my, uh, the, what I have learned in particular through working with users is that the emphasis needs to always be on the design of how the value is added to the city. Uh, and then identifying the best possible technology to deliver that the functionality that generates the value rather than the, the other way around. I think, I think that's very important. Uh, there are very low tech solutions for very um, um, useful things and some require more technology and sometimes it will be a mix. But um, I think the smartness is not always proportional to the amount of technology used. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that's my, my key uh, observation for that area. And, and, and the other thing is really to understand diversity. Um, and I'm not just talking about cultural diversity or, the, or that understanding that different users are different, but also thinking about things like exclusion, for example. If you introduce a system, how does it impact people who are not on the system? We still have a digital divide. We still have lots of people who are not participating as much in these new technologies as others. And I think um, in order to responsibly deploy solutions in cities, we need to uh, take all these factors into account. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fantastic uh, insights and that's actually critical because normally we don't separate these things. So last question, and I think giving you that you are uh, an academic and, and of course a leader in one of the leading universities. So how do you see education and, um, and special education in the time of AI and what would be the, the last uh, uh, references or references and as well some suggestions you might have for our audience? So I think um, for to address many, many of the issues we've described before, I already emphasized that uh, you know, more education is needed, but I really think it's, this has now reached the point where it needs to be something completely standard. People need to understand, they don't need to be able to program AI, they don't need to be coders, but I think they need to understand digital technology and informatics technology and also some, uh, some um, principles of the more advanced things like AI or blockchain or uh, machine learning, um, at least at the same level where 
at which they learn about, let's say, biology or, or, or mathematics or history at school. I really think, um, and unfortunately, I am not hearing this enough from governments and uh, educators in the educational system uh, of a real strong effort to embed that throughout the curriculum of people from a young age. Um, uh, if you want to, you, you mentioned uh, resources. Um, there is a, a, a fantastic uh, online course from the University of Helsinki uh, that has been taken by 300,000 people that's called Elements of AI. And I think it's a very nice illustration of what you can teach people without requiring them to have technical expertise. Uh, because I think what we need is we need citizens that, who are uh, empowered to make the right decisions, who are empowered to safely and uh, responsibly be able to use the tools, but also to judge the technologies and uh, contribute to the debate. Uh, and I think this is really urgent. Uh, if I'm sure if we have this conversation again in five years, we will be talking about completely new technologies. Uh, and I don't think as societies we can afford for the citizen, wider citizenship to really uh, fall behind. So we can't have this, these kind of waves where the innovation comes first, then the governments need to catch up and then the citizens can only catch up. Uh, what we need is we need to be on the front foot so that people are really kind of uh, ready for the future innovations. And um, I think with computing more generally, that chance uh, has been missed. I think if, if, if everybody understood the basics of computational thinking and, uh, and how computing works uh, 20 years ago, then we would have much more, uh, a much more mature uh, population and workforce now. Um, but uh, so therefore it's essential that uh, people catch up, uh, catch up now. And as I say, sometimes it's a little bit misleading for people to think, I, I don't want to be a, a coder. I don't want to be a, a programmer uh, because I don't think they have to be. That would be a bit, little bit like, uh, like me being able to become an accountant after I, I learned maths at school, uh, which uh, is, it was not the objective. The objective was to understand how things work and be able to uh, to rationally think through them and use them in your in your career well fantastic and inspirational thank you so much professor michael it's been a, a pleasure and privilege and uh, we'll publish and and promote this to the world thank you so much thank you very much for having me it was a pleasure